0: 2009, November 5th, today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 30, Goldilocks and the Three Planets, The Habitable Zone Around the Sun. So we're going to finish out our discussion of life in the solar system by trying to put a lot of these ideas back together again and see, well, what lessons have I learned about life in the solar system that might be applicable when I want to now start going out to other solar systems? Ten or so years ago, this would be the end of the class. Woohoo! end of the quarter, and we're all done. Unfortunately, we have another 16 lectures to go because in the last 10 years, we've discovered planets around other stars. So we really do have to address these questions of what is life going to be like around other stars? And so the question we want to ask today is not so much about whether there's life on this, that, or the other body, but what we've learned about the possibility of life elsewhere in the solar system that now is applicable to that problem of life around other stars. So I've called this lecture Goalilocks and the Three Planets. It's really about the habitable zone of the sun. Recall that the temperature of a planet's surface depends upon how far away you are from the sun and how shiny your surface is. Well, I'm going to add another factor to that. I'm also going to add the sun's brightness. The sun's total brightness or so-called luminosity. So how hot the surface of the Earth or the moon or some moon out around Saturn is depends upon how bright the sun is, how far away you are from the sun, and how shiny your surface is, how much sunlight you can absorb. We're going to see how that comes into play here in just a moment. Now it turns out that proximity to the sun plus the greenhouse effect, as we've already seen over and over again, determines how hot or cold the surface is relative to the presence or absence of stable liquid water. So we've looked at the inner solar system in particular as well as at the outer solar system and so where do I find liquid water on the surface? This leaves aside the question of liquid water below the surface. But just for the surface water, which is what we see on the Earth, what are the factors that determine that? The second thing we've noticed is, again in our discussion of the terrestrial planets and also of the moons in the outer solar system, is the size of a planet. How massive it is, what its surface gravity is, and what temperature it is, depends upon what kind of atmosphere, if any, it can hold on to. So that's, an, that's a factor if I want to have surface conditions be, quote, you know, Earth-like or at least certainly conducive to life, it's got to have an atmosphere. We're then going to define the habitable zone. The habitable zone is going to be defined fairly narrowly. It's going to be this, the region around the sun where stable liquid water can exist on the surface of the planet. And that's how we're going to define habitability. We're then going to also note that the Sun is not always the same brightness through its history. We've already mentioned, for example, in this class that early in the Earth's history, shortly after the Earth was born, the Sun was 70% fainter. The Sun changes its brightness through its lifetime, and so we'll define something additionally called the continuously habitable zone. That's going to be the region around the Sun where liquid water is stable for the life of the Sun, or at least for a significant fraction of the life of the Sun. So it's not just where is the habitable zone now, where was it in the past, where was it in the future, and how long is a particular planet in the habitable zone of the sun? Or, when we obviously take it to the next step in the next week, we're on the habitable zone of its star. So today we're going to be looking at the problem of determination of habitability and defining this thing we call the habitable zone. So just as they a lightning review of everything we've seen for the terrestrial planets. These are the ones that are close enough to the sun that the question of the phase of water should be important. On Mercury, it's tiny. There's no geological activity. There's no atmosphere to speak of except for little bits of gas that's captured from solar wind and, or been knocked off the surface. It's got a very hot day side and a very cold night side, and from the point of view of life, we just stop talking about it except that it looks cool. Venus, the second planet out from the Sun, is about the same size as Earth. It's just a little tiny bit smaller. It's hot on the inside, so it has geological activity, but it doesn't have plate tectonics. The structure of its crust is different. It's one big plate rather than busted into small plates. It has a very thick carbon dioxide atmosphere, approximately 100 times the atmospheric pressure of the Earth. Actually, the the correct number is about 93 atmospheres of pressure at the surface of Venus, so it's like being deep inside the oceans here on Earth in terms of pressure. It's got a uniformly, extremely hot temperature across its entire surface. 750 degrees Kelvin, night and day side, on the planet, due to the heavy atmosphere. And there is no water in any form. There's not ice, there's not liquid, there's not gas. Venus is bone dry. It has lost all of its water through the course of of the history of the solar system. We come out to the Earth, we step out a little bit further from the sun, and we find the Earth, in fact, is our home. It's a very comfortable place. It's hot in the interior, so it's geologically active. It's got plate tectonics. The plate crust is broken up into multiple plates. We get volcanism, subduction, and all that kind of good stuff going on in very active geology. We have a nitrogen and oxygen atmosphere. There's virtually no carbon dioxide left in our atmosphere, nor is there any water vapor left in our atmosphere. The water is all basically in the oceans. The carbon dioxide is locked up in the carbonate rocks in the crust and dissolved into ocean water. So very different conditions than we see on Venus. There's moderate temperatures on most days, and there is abundant liquid water. In fact, 70-some-odd percent of the surface of the Earth is covered by liquid liquid water oceans. We step a little further out in the solar system to Mars. It's a smaller world than the the Earth. It's only about half the radius and about 11% the mass. There is no present-day signs of geological activity or tectonics, although we do see abundant evidence of past geologic activity, which tells us that the planet has in fact fully solidified within the last few billion years. It's got a very, very thin, cold, dry carbon dioxide atmosphere. In fact, the proportions of carbon dioxide to other stuff is more like what we see on Venus than we'd see on the Earth. It's got extremely cold temperatures, cold enough, in fact, that carbon dioxide can freeze out and snow out of the atmosphere as dry snow, dry ice, and we do see, in fact, however, a lot of water, unlike the case of Venus, where the water is simply gone. There is water on Mars, but we think it's primarily frozen below the surface. We've also found in the Mars geology, Abundant evidence of past liquid water flows, and we found the chemical after effects of chemistry that occurs in long-time standing water on Mars. But when we look today, we do not see any liquid surface water. This is not to rule out the possibility that there might be subsurface liquid water. We still don't know about that. We certainly know most of the ice is even subsurface. So if you put a block of ice out on the surface of Mars, it would just sublimate away into vapor. It wouldn't actually form a little puddle of anything. So four worlds, four probable very similar starting points in terms of atmospheres, four very different outcomes. And in past classes, we've talked in some detail about what drove those outcomes. Why did the atmospheres of Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars evolve in such different directions from such similar starting points? Now, this is probably the scariest mathematical formula we're gonna see in this class, and I show it now in its full glory. We've seen bits and pieces of this in the homework. The homework problems are where I isolated and solved this for particular sets of parameters that I wanted to leave free. The temperature, your no-atmosphere equilibrium temperature depends upon the distance you are from the sun, D, your shininess, your albedo, which is a measure of surface reflectivity, and there's one additional factor which we have not changed because on human timescales it does not change, and that's the luminosity of the sun, the total power output of the sun. And that I've represented by the ratio, the luminosity of the sun divided by the luminosity now. So if I was going to talk about equilibrium temperatures in the solar system today, this number would be 1. L over L now, would, L sun over L now is 1.000. But in the past and in the future, that number is not 1. And if I go out to talk about other stars, it will be a different number entirely. So we have to consider the three pieces that go into determining my equilibrium temperature. In words, what this formula tells you are things which are slightly or more or less obvious. Objects that are further from the sun will be cooler, you're further from the source of heat. And that's not surprising because the equilibrium temperature drops roughly like one over the square root of the distance. Shinier objects are cooler at a given distance. You have to think about this a little bit more. An object is shiny means it reflects most of the sunlight hitting it off into space rather than absorbing it. You have to absorb if you're going to warm up. So just because the sunlight's hitting you, you've got to absorb that energy to heat yourself up. If you just bounce it off into space, you're going to get cold. So shinier objects are cooler at a given distance from the sun. A lump of ice and a lump of coal at the same distance from the sun, the lump of coal will be warmer than the lump of ice. The final piece I've added is looking at the brightness of the sun. If the sun were to become brighter, actually begin to put out more energy from its surface, everything in the solar system would get hotter. Similarly, if the sun was to fade out and become fainter in terms of its absolute power emitted from its surface, everything in the solar system would get colder. So we noticed, again, the idea of habitability was the presence of liquid water presence of liquid water is when you look at the equilibrium temperature relative to the freezing point and boiling point of water. Where, is the, where, where are the range of distances from the sun, brightnesses of the sun, and perhaps shininess of your surface that put you in that sweet spot where water can be liquid on your surface? That's the real key question here. For the sun, we're going to have to look back in time for this. But clearly, when we go to other stars we're going to be comparing how much power comes out of those stars compared to the sun. And we're going to find that different places, different regions around those stars will be the places where you expect to find liquid water. So that's kind of the last we're going to see of this particular formula today, at least and certainly in detail. You can expect to see it not only in subsequent lectures, but in subsequent homework assignments. So let's just play this as thought experiments. Let's just sort of work our way through this, because this is important for understanding when we get out to other worlds. Let's play the thought experiment that I can have the freedom to take the Earth in its current parameters, its atmosphere, its albedo, and put it anywhere I want to in the solar system and tweak its parameters. So what would happen if I took the Earth and I moved it closer to the sun? Well, the first thing that happens, of course, is that the closer you get to a source of light, the brighter the sunlight appears to you. The amount of sunlight reaching you goes up like one over the distance squared. So if I'm... Two times closer to the sun, I'm two squared or four times apparent brighter sunlight reaching me. So as a consequence, because I'm closer to the source of heat, my temperature goes up. And it goes up like the square root of the distance change. So if I was to move the Earth into an orbit which brought it closer to the sun, the mean global temperature of the Earth would rise, everything else being held constant. What happens if that that occurs? What happens if I raise the mean global temperature by a few degrees Celsius? Or maybe a lot of degrees Celsius. So by moving it closer to the sun, I'm increasing the amount of solar radiation. If I increase the solar radiation, I increase the amount of surface temperature. What happens? Well, if I increase the air temperature, air temperature has, warm air has two properties. One is it increases the evaporation rate of water vapor. Number two, the warmer the air gets, the more moisture it can hold. You all have an intuitive feel for this. Think of a hot, humid day compared to a cold winter's day where it's bone dry. Colder air holds less water vapor than warmer air. So as you increase the air temperature, you increase the amount of evaporation, the warmer air can hold more water vapor. The increase in the water vapor means that you get greater infrared absorption. We always think of carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, but remember that water vapor is also a greenhouse gas. If I dramatically increase the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere, leaving the carbon dioxide content alone for the moment, I increase the amount of infrared absorption, therefore increase the strength of the greenhouse effect. As I increase the strength of the greenhouse effect, I trap more solar radiation in the blanket of the Earth's atmosphere and I raise the Earth's air temperature. But we already saw that an increase in air temperature leads to an increase in evaporation, which increases the water vapor content of the atmosphere. But the water vapor content of the atmosphere going up leads to greater infrared absorption, which leads to greater heating, which forms what's called a positive feedback loop. A positive feedback loop is one in which a change does not produce a compensating reaction. A change just simply makes things worse. And so if I can push it hard enough forward, I, I make the temperature go up enough, That the amount of water vapor I'm dumping into the atmosphere, I'm making the atmosphere moister, starts to appreciably change the strength of the greenhouse effect. Then I could, in fact, tip the system over into an unstable growth regime, and I get an effect called a runaway greenhouse effect. Now, normally, there are lots of compensating effects. I've only focused on water vapor in the atmosphere, but there are very clearly a lot of other compensating effects to come into play. For example, if I put more water vapor in the atmosphere, there's more water vapor to form clouds out of. When I form clouds, clouds are shiny. Shiny clouds reflect sunlight out, and so they kind of compensate back. Also warmer air, you tend to get a little bit more rain, and so there's actually that cycle which precipitates water out of the atmosphere, kind of would bring you back into a balance. But it's not a balance like sitting at the bottom of a deep bowl. It's balanced sitting at the top of a peak of a fairly broad mountain peak. You can push it back and forth a little bit, and it will respond back. But what if you push it so hard, it falls off the cliff? That's what a positive feedback loop problem is, is that if I make a big change in the Earth's temperature, I can cause a change that will actually lead into an unstable positive feedback loop with moisture, and I get a runaway greenhouse effect where eventually the temperature rises to the point that the oceans begin to evaporate. As the oceans begin to evaporate, they begin to reveal underlying crusts. ocean rock, which contains a lot of carbonates, those carbonates exposed to heat. What happens when you expose a carbonaceous rock to heat? It releases its carbon dioxide. Now I've got the system dumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere in addition to water vapor. As I blow away the, the oceans, I shut down the carbon cycle so I have no way to get the carbon dioxide in my atmosphere out of that atmosphere anymore, and the system just basically rolls downhill like a snowball. What happens is, with the runaway greenhouse effect, is you turn the Earth into Venus, you basically ramp the temperature up very rapidly on the surface. You take all that gas that was locked away in crustal rock, and you blow it out into the atmosphere. The atmospheric pressure goes up dramatically, the greenhouse effect goes up dramatically, and it goes completely unstable on you. So this is the, what the greenhouse effect is all about, a runaway greenhouse effect is all about. Mostly the greenhouse effect is our friend, but it's a, it's a very sort of quasi-stable equilibrium. But you can only make the equilibrium go so far. So, if we move the Earth closer to the Sun, what we get is a runaway greenhouse effect, and we would, in effect, turn the Earth into Venus over the course of a few few million years. How close is too close? How close would we have to move the Earth towards the Sun, such that I would make the the Earth basically run away in a greenhouse effect? There's two answers. They're very approximate, because it's a very hard problem to figure out all the different feedbacks that go on in the system. A runaway greenhouse effect, you have to get to about 0.84 astronomical units. That's almost all the way into Venus's orbit. A moist greenhouse effect actually requires a much more modest increase in temperature. The moist greenhouse is where you dump a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere and lead to a runaway, whereas a full runaway greenhouse effect is due to starting to dump now your carbon dioxide reservoirs into the atmosphere. You need to get warmer for the carbon dioxide reservoir tap. But for moist water tap, just increasing that evaporation to the point that the usual compensating counter-effects to warmer weather get overwhelmed, we think it occurs if you move the earth only 5% closer to the sun than it is now. Higher temperatures mean more water in the upper atmosphere, and once the water in the upper atmosphere gets exposed to the ultraviolet radiation from the sun, it eventually gets destroyed. So it's one of these things where once you go down that slippery slope, you can't go back. If you stay down there so long, you begin to destroy the water in the system. And that's what happened to Venus. Venus started out with a lot of water, but it's been completely dried out. The water has been you know, lofted into the upper atmosphere as vapor because it could not exist as ice or liquid on the surface. Ultraviolet radiation from the sun breaks the water into hydrogen and oxygen. The hydrogen vanishes into space, the oxygen oxidizes other compounds in the atmosphere. Over time, you destroy all the water vapor. So that's why there's no water anywhere on Venus in any form today, because that drying process is so very efficient. So if we move the Earth inside, we basically would drive it into Venus-like conditions over the course of about a few hundred million to basically a billion years, depending on whether you want to push it all the way to dry out. Move closer to the Sun, you get too hot. Let's go the other way. What if we move the Earth out in its orbit? What if I move it away from the Sun? Well, you're moving away from the Sun, you're going to get cooler. So your temperature is going to drop because you're getting less sunlight. Now, we can ask the calculation, go back into my formula and put in the properties for the Earth and say, how far do I have to move the Earth from its current position to where the mean surface temperature, including effects of greenhouse, or at least approximate effects of greenhouse, would reach the point that the mean surface temperature was the same as the freezing point of pure water. That answer turns out to be about 1.07 astronomical units, about 7% further away than it is today. However, it turns out that's not an easily straightforward calculation, because the greenhouse effect is not a simple linear process. And so in fact, what probably will happen is, and, and depends upon the climate models that people use, But you can actually extend this distance out to where you could move the Earth, to where you could still have liquid water before freeze-out begins, to maybe as much as 40% further away, out to maybe 1.4 astronomical units. Some people think even as far as 1.7 astronomical units. It is not a simple calculation. So the naive calculation makes it too narrow. A more realistic calculation using real climate models on a real Earth parameters gives you a bit more leverage. It's very different, the case here, because once you get the greenhouse effect triggered, that's a very strong instability. When you move outwards away from the sun, the instability that would come into play to dramatically alter the climate turns out to be a, a milder instability, we think. But what happens? What happens as we move further out? What happens is eventually you reach the point that freeze out begins, okay? Cold air cannot hold as much water vapor as warm air. The water in that cold air eventually begins to precipitate out as snow. You start covering the ground with snow. Snow is shiny. Shiny snow reflects sunlight away. If it reflects sunlight away, it lowers the temperature of the Earth further because you reduce the Earth's capacity for absorbing sunlight. But as you make the Earth's surface colder, less and less water vapor can stay in the atmosphere. You begin raining out, snowing out the sunlight, and you can lead to a runaway freeze-out. So you can go in the other direction, but now what you're doing is you're basically collapsing the water vapor in the atmosphere into snow. You turn into, if you will, snowball Earth. Now, we think this runaway begins somewhere between 1.4 and 1.7 astronomical units. There's an additional effect that comes into play. On the Earth, snowball Earth was gotten out of because of heavy volcanism continuing to belch carbon dioxide into the Earth's atmosphere. The carbon dioxide led to a very rapid greenhouse effect, which melted the ice and restored the equilibrium of the carbon cycle. If you move far enough out in the solar system and you get cold enough, you can run into an even worse problem where carbon dioxide begins to dry snow out then not only have you removed water vapor from the atmosphere, you're beginning to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and shutting down the greenhouse effect. So part of the uh, big uncertainty, the big question about where this kicks in between 1.4 and 1.7 AUs is pretty much a factor for an Earth-sized planet as to where you begin to get the carbon dioxide catastrophe, where you begin to shut your greenhouse effect down by, su- by basically snowing all the carbon dioxide out of your atmosphere. That's why these numbers are much further out than just for the water vapor numbers. As long as you can maintain some carbon dioxide in your atmosphere, you might be able to hang on a little longer with greenhouse effect. But once you start reaching a regime where you take out the carbon dioxide, game over. Polar bears might like it, they're not so happy right now, but, you know, they only get one vote. So, the net result of too close to the sun, too hot, too far from the sun, too cold, is a classic Goldilocks problem, right? Too close to the sun is too hot, too far from the sun is too cold, and where we are is just right. So, now we're dealing with atmospheric temperature, not bowls of porridge, but the basic idea maintains. In order for there to be stable liquid water on the planet, I have to be in a place where I'm not too hot, not too hot that I form a runaway greenhouse effect, and not so cold that I get a runaway freeze out. And that turns out to be a fairly narrow band around the sun, and this has been called traditionally the habitable zone. They've defined the habitable zone as where you could put the Earth with an atmosphere with a pressure of one Earth atmosphere such that you could have it there and still maintain liquid water. So the habitable zone is first and foremost, a statement about the location of the Earth, not a general statement about the the viability of life or not. It is purely a statement about, take an Earth-like planet with an Earth-like atmosphere with an Earth-like composition. What range of distances can you have it from the Sun and still have liquid water on the surface like we see today? That's the habitable zone. Where is that habitable zone today? What planets fall into it? Well, here's Here's looking down on the solar system. Sun, orbit of Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. The conservative estimate is a fairly narrow range between 0.95 and 1.4 astronomical units. The inner boundary is set by the onset of a moist greenhouse effect. The outer boundary is set by one conservative estimate about the beginning of freeze-out. The optimistic estimate, a somewhat wider band, moves the inner boundary to 0.84 astronomical units, which is the onset of a runaway carbon dioxide greenhouse effect, and the outer boundary is set by the viability of greenhouse effect to a greater distance before you get carbon dioxide freeze out. And so you can see that the bright green band, we are very comfortably within the bright green band, but kind of close to the inside boundary. So the Earth is not actually in its liquid water comfortable zone right in the middle. It's actually pretty close to the the front side for the present-day conditions of the Sun. This may be a fatter band or a narrower band, depending upon whether you take the the conservative or the optimistic approach. It's also worth noting that from the conservative point of view, Mars just skirts the conservative habitable zone, but in fact is comfortably within the optimistic habitable zone. And so the first question you might ask is, well, why isn't there liquid water on the surface of Mars today? Well, you've got to be careful with that, because remember, the habitable zone is defined for an Earth-like planet, and Mars is not Earth-like. Mars is small. So the answer to that would be, if the optimistic habitable zone is the correct one, then an Earth in a Mars-like orbit would probably be habitable. But would a Mars be habitable in the habitable zone? And the answer is, well, we already know part of that answer. It has to do with the size of the planet. It's also notable that both Venus and Mercury are outside of both the optimistic and the conservative habitable zones. So we would not expect, if I saw an Earth-like planet in the orbit of Venus, I do not expect it to have habitable, be habitable in the sense of having liquid water at one atmosphere of pressure. In fact, it just so happens we have an example in the solar system of just that. So the the kind of the bottom line that comes out of this takeaway point here from this is, the Earth could actually be in a fairly wide range of orbits and still be Earth-like in that regard. But just because you are in the habitable zone doesn't mean you, of necessity, will be habitable. And the obvious counterexample staring us right in the face is Mars. So what's the deal with Mars? Why is Mars an exception? Well, the reason why Mars is an exception has to do with the fact that the size of a planet is also one of the influences on its habitability. And we've mentioned this before, and so we'll review it here again. Let's take the Earth and make it smaller. What happens if I make it smaller? I mean, I make it smaller in size, and I take away mass, so its gravity is weaker. If its gravity is weaker with a warm atmosphere, the, the speed of the molecules is going to start becoming large compared to the escape velocity from that smaller Earth. And so the warm atmosphere will literally evaporate off the surface of a tiny Earth. Furthermore, so the first thing that happens is, if I make the Earth smaller, I start making, pushing it into a regime where it can no longer retain its atmosphere, because it can't hold on to it. Its gravity isn't strong enough to hold on to a warm atmosphere. The second factor that comes into play is, remember, that the size of an object tells you how fast it cools. Smaller objects cool faster than bigger objects, almost in direct proportion to their size. So if I made the Earth half its radius with its current mass, it would have one-fourth the gravity and would cool two times faster, so that by the present day, a one-half size Earth would, in fact, be almost completely solidified on the inside. If it solidifies on the inside, you shut down the geodynamo, you lose the magnetic field, and now you start exposing the upper parts of the Earth's atmosphere to the blast of the solar wind, which will begin eroding and ablating off the atmosphere. So you're first of all too small to hang on to your atmosphere, and if you have no magnetic field, you start having additional accelerated loss to the solar wind. So you very quickly can move into a regime where if you get too small, you lose your atmosphere very quickly. And the example, of course, is Mars. Even though it is existing in the optimistic habitable zone, it's too small to retain its atmosphere for more than about one billion years before it cools off and loses its magnetic field, loses what little gas it can hang on to, and Mars today has an exceedingly thin atmosphere. It's lost most of the original heavy atmosphere it probably had. It was only during that first billion years that it may have been habitable. But because of losing its atmosphere, shutting down its greenhouse effect, it very quickly fell outside of a Mars planet habitable zone. Now the other way, of course, you can go is you can make the Earth too big. You can make it so big that its gravity can hold on to almost any atmosphere. And the danger point is when you reach the scale where you can begin to hang on to hydrogen. Once you can begin to hang on to hydrogen in your atmosphere, you begin to build up a very hydrogen-rich, reducing chemistry atmosphere. Hydrogen is much more abundant than everything else in the solar nebula. So if you start big, you're going to build a big atmosphere relatively quickly. At the position of the Earth, there isn't as much hydrogen as outward Jupiter and Saturn formed, but there would be enough that it would very quickly move you into a position where you would have reducing chemistry in the atmosphere, and your atmosphere would be too hot and too high pressure to sustain liquid water. Water would basically become a vapor. You also have hydrogen chemistry, which tends to take all the carbon dioxide and turn it into methane and water. So you're going to basically shut down a lot of the basic life chemistry. Where are these limits? Well, it's harder for me to describe where these can derive from, but the best estimates are for a planet at one astronomical unit distance from the sun is between 0.2 the mass of the Earth and about 10 times the mass of the Earth. So that's actually a pretty big range. So if you're smaller than 0.2 the mass of the Earth, you won't be able to hold on to your atmosphere, and you'll lose it at at one astronomical unit radius. If you're bigger than 10 Earth masses, you'll build such a big atmosphere that you basically become a mini Jupiter and, and game over. Now this upper end and the lower end, of course, are fuzzy. So here's the effect. Let's take the Earth at its current equilibrium temperature. If I increase its mass, what I do is I increase the surface escape velocity. And so I quickly will move into a regime at about 10 times, the uh, 10 or 20 times, the mass of the Earth where I begin to hold on to hydrogen. Actually, it turns out I begin to pick up hydrogen very quickly, even before I cross the line. Going the other way, if I decrease the mass, I eventually first begin to lose water vapor, then nitrogen, then carbon dioxide, as I get smaller and smaller and smaller. So it turns out there's a relatively narrow band of where I can retain my atmosphere and mass, or build an atmosphere so big it screws me up. So that's the way in which the role of size of the planet works. So, if we take the previous piece we saw, which is how close you are to the sun, the proximity to your parent star determines your surface temperature, and that surface temperature determines the stability and survival of liquid water on your surface. That sets up the classic Goldilocks problem of too hot, too cold, just right. There's a second dimension, just like in the Goldilocks story, was not just about porridge, it was also about chairs. Okay? In this case, the full, the full planetary Goldilocks problem, as I call it, is you're not too hot, not too cold, not too big, not too small. So you have not only where you are in the solar system with respect to your position, but also how big you are. If you're too small, you can't hold on to your atmosphere and liquid water won't be able to survive. You get Mars-like conditions. Remember, if your air pressure drops to the point that you drop below the three-phase zone, you can't have liquid water anyway. You can only have water ice and water vapor, just like on Mars. You don't get a stable liquid phase. If you're too big, you only get water vapor because your atmosphere becomes too big and too hot and too heavy. The reason why I've, I've dwelled on this a little bit is if you listen to press reports, and we, we're discovering planets at an absolutely ridiculous rate right now. Every now and then you'll hear a st- press story come out saying so-and-so group, the Marcy group, the, the Swiss group, the whoever group, has discovered a planet in the habitable zone of its star. And you'll go, cool, and then they'll start going on, and Jeff Marcy or someone or various sundry people will talk about how blah, 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 liquid water, blah, 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 life. And that's always what gets into the headlines. And then you open it up and you read the details and you say, oh yeah, it's uh, it's about a Jupiter mass. That's 318 times the mass of the Earth. Eh, fail. It's too big. So just because a planet is in a star's Earth habitable zone, does not mean that it of necessity has liquid water, nor that it's even habitable. If it's too big, it doesn't have an atmosphere that can sustain liquid water. So be very, very, very skeptical of any claims you hear about liquid water on the surface of a planet in its star's habitable zone if that planet is not down in the Earth mass zone. Three, four Earth masses? Pretty good. One Earth mass? Well, that's the Holy Grail. We haven't gotten there yet. Okay. Remember this picture. This is actually probably the last time we're going to get to look at this, but you've all seen this. Now you see how I constructed this picture. That's the no atmosphere criteria if the planet is too small. That's the heavy atmosphere criteria if the planet is too big. That's the cold interior line which sets up whether or not the magnetic field hurts you or lack of a magnetic field allows you to lose your atmosphere. It basically adds on to the no atmosphere case. Additional constraint, that's the liquid water zone. That's the habitable zone. And notice that what we end up with is a very narrow range of parameters on the Earth. Between about 0.2 and 10 times the mass of the Earth, between about 0.84 and 1.7 astronomical units. So this green band that I've been drawing all along is the habitable zone. But the habitable zone isn't the whole story. It's not just the habitable zone, it's also the do I have an ap- a right, the right kind of atmosphere zone. And that's why it's not just distance from the Sun, it's also how big you are. It's the two-dimensional full planetary Goldilocks problem. So this in in effect, defines what we call the habitable zone today for the solar system for planets like the Earth. Any questions about this before we go on? Yes, sir? Uh, where would Europa fall? Well, actually, you're, you're a good question. Europa is, let's see, is Europa the smallest of the... Yeah, I think Europa is that one right there. But you ask a very good question. Where does Europa fall? What about Titan? What about Enceladus? Enceladus is like down in here. Actually, no. Enceladus is. Oh gosh, what is the mass of Enceladus? I've forgotten the mass of Enceladus. Oh, as I'm embarrassed, it's down here somewhere. So, so why the hell do we talk about life on, on Enceladus, life on Europa, life on uh, Titan? What's the piece? What's the key assumption that goes into my assertion about liquid water here? Somebody. Yes, ma'am. That's one factor, but what's the real assumption that goes into my calculating this habitable zone? Yes? All heat, comes from the sun. All heat comes from the sun and that the water is on the surface. But we've already seen three places in our solar system that are way outside the traditionally defined habitable zone for which there are other sources of heat and there is subsurface protection of water from UV, not the necessity of that atmosphere as a shield. Keep that one in mind because here's where we're going to bring in the next piece. What I haven't talked about is time, the aspect of time in this problem. The sun seems like it's shining nice and bright, shining as it always has through all of human history at exactly the same brightness. In fact, I think we would actually be pretty hard-pressed with modern technology to have noted any change in the sun's brightness over the period that we have possessed technology capable of measuring it, which is well in advance of a century now. But if you're working in billions of years, that is not so. Four and a half billion years ago, when the Earth was formed, the Sun was only 70% as bright as it is today. It was 30% less bright, fainter than it is today. As a consequence, the Earth had an equilibrium temperature 8.5% lower, 70% to the one-fourth power. That's where I pulled that number out of a hat for the homework problem a couple weeks ago. Now, This would actually lower the thing below or in fact near the freezing point of water, but the Paleo Earth had a very heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere because the full carbon dioxide cycle had not finished its job of scrubbing the CO2 out of the atmosphere and making the nice nice light nitrogen atmosphere we enjoy today. So you would have had a much stronger greenhouse effect and that's why people believe the Earth didn't freeze solid on formation because even though technically it's not in the habitable zone, it had a big old carbon dioxide atmosphere and therefore was able to sustain a higher liquid water friendly temperature. But if I use detailed models of the interior of the Sun, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about the other stars in the the coming weeks because there's a different story for different stars, the Sun has been growing steadily brighter as it's begun to age. And the reason for that is because the Sun gets its power from nuclear fusion it fuses four hydrogens into one helium. That helium builds up in the core, and that changes the core's structure in such a way that the temperature of the core has to get hotter. But as the temperature of the core gets hotter, the nuclear fusion goes brighter, higher, and the sun gets a little bit brighter. It's very gradual. I mean, we're talking about 30% in four and a half billion years. But it's significant over the course of the history of the Earth. Of course, we're only halfway through the sun's hydrogen reserves. It's got another four and a half, five billion years to go. So the sun in the future is going to keep getting brighter and brighter and brighter. As the sun gets brighter, the equilibrium temperature at the Earth will rise. About 1.1 billion years from now, the sun will be about 10 percent brighter than it is today. If I punch those numbers into the equations for the for the solar radiation, what I find is Making the sun 10% brighter is equivalent to moving the earth into the moist greenhouse effect line. Right, because you move closer to the sun, it gets apparently brighter, or you keep the sun still and turn the light up. Yes, ma'am? What did you say the moist greenhouse effect was? Moist is just water going into the atmosphere and beginning to enhance the greenhouse effect. Runaway greenhouse effect is when you begin to release the carbon dioxide reserves. Uh, it's as bad as anything else. So basically, it's the onset of the runaway to the to the full runaway greenhouse effect. Yeah, it's a very good question. Is it moist in a, in a in a case where we're simply turning up the brightness of the sun? What we do is we first trigger a moist greenhouse effect, and that starts the snowball rolling, and then we get to the full up flat out runaway carbon dioxide greenhouse effect. So it's the precursor to the to the big show. So at ten percent, we get a moist greenhouse effect. So we move ourselves to the inner edge of the conservative habitable zone. 2.2 billion years from now, and that these are just a factor of two is purely an accident. Actually, I rounded the numbers off so it looks better than it is. The sun will be about 40% brighter. Actually, I think you did the homework problem was 36% brighter. If you're wondering where that homework problem came from. That's what triggers the runaway greenhouse effect, where you begin to dump, the, you've you dried out the Earth and you begin dumping the carbon dioxide reservoirs into the atmosphere. So what's going to happen is, I haven't done anything to the Earth. I just kept it in place. It's just tooling around in its orbit like it has for the last 4.5 billion years. But when the Earth gets to be not 4.5, but 5.6 billion years, it's going to trigger a greenhouse effect all by itself. By 2.2 billion years in the future, or the sun approximately 6.7 billion years old, basically the Earth will become like Venus, all because the sun is getting progressively brighter. The lesson involved in this is that we defined the habitable zone previously in terms of the present day solar system conditions, but we also have to take into account the effect of time. The conditions in our solar system have changed over the history of the solar system because as the sun evolves, as it ages, it changes its luminosity, which means the habitable zone moves with time very slowly. We're talking billions of years now, but it moves very slowly. How does it move? Twofold. As the sun ages, the habitable zone will move outwards because the sun will be getting brighter. That will push the habitable zone further out. And it will actually grow grow a little bit wider. The range of of places where you can have a habitable zone will get slowly, slowly larger. So, the Earth has been inside of its habitable zone pretty much from birth. This this gray line here shows... Okay, the plot's kind of hard to see a little bit from the back of the room, perhaps. On the horizontal axis, I have the age of the Sun in billions of years from 0 to 10 billion years. On the vertical axis, I have distance from the Sun in astronomical units, 1 AU, 2 AUs, 3 AUs. The orbit of the Earth is the gray line. The lower gray line is the orbit of Venus. The upper gray line is the orbit of Mars. We're right now, right here, right now is the present day, four and a half billion years up from Perth, and we find that the Earth is, in fact, at the inner edge of the habitable zone. At the time the Earth was born, in fact, it was in the dead center of the habitable zone, and the habitable zone was kind of this narrow band. So as in the last 4.5 billion years, the habitable zone has moved out a bit, and the band has gotten a little bit broader. But notice, the Earth is still sort of encroaching closer to the inner edge of the habitable zone, but that's the conservative habitable zone in dark green, In light green is the optimistic habitable zone. It's going to take a while, about 1.1 or so billion years, we're going to start crossing out of that line. That's where the moist greenhouse effect may kick in, because remember the inner edge of the, conservative green, of the conservative habitable zone was defined in terms of onset of moist greenhouse. So not surprisingly, that's going to occur about right here a billion years in the future. The optimistic habitable zone was defined in terms of the onset of a thorough runaway carbon dioxide greenhouse effect, which occurs further out. And this estimate makes it more like 7 billion years, but in fact it's probably a little closer in new estimates to about 6.7 or so billion years. So not too bad, but About there. So notice that Mars is going to find itself in the habitable zone six billion years from now, whereas the Earth will be falling out. We call this region where the planet has been inside of the habitable zone for most of the life of the star the continuously habitable zone. The Earth has been here for a very long part of of its time. So that's the continuously habitable zone. It's the range of distances where a planet can have stable liquid water for the entire lifetime, or if you will, most of the effective lifetime of the star. However, as we've seen, sunlight's not the whole story. We can have sources of chemical energy, which are utilized by things like deep sea vents and, and hot springs extremophiles on the Earth. There's life that lives without sun, sunlight deep in the Earth. Tidal heating and radioactivity in Io, Europa, and Enceladus can in fact give you a source of energy far from the warming sun. And in fact, if you combine those with chemical energy like deep sea springs, you can have life completely independent of the concept of a habitable zone. So the bottom line is, this idea of a habitable zone, which is such a key idea in understanding life around other worlds, is a guide to our thinking. But it should not be allowed to restrict our thinking Because even within our own solar system, although we haven't proven it yet, and we don't have any evidence except a strong hunch, there is life outside of the habitable zone, albeit perhaps maybe just microscopic life underneath the ices of Europa or perhaps in the ice puddles of of Enceladus. But it certainly is a guide to, we know, if you're in the habitable zone and are in there long enough for evolution to play out, you get the Earth. And the only planet in our solar system that has been in the continuously habitable zone is the Earth. See you all tomorrow.